0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're
1: going to stand with you as long as it takes. We are going to stick with Ukraine and all of the allies are going to stick with Ukraine as long as it takes. And we will stay with you. We will stay with you. as long as it takes you're already north of 15 billion dollars in terms of those commitments how far do you go as long
0: as it takes it's
1: worth fighting for for as long as it takes and that's how long we're going to be with you mr president for as long as it takes
0: i'm josh hammer welcome back and welcome to a world war iii special edition of the josh hammer show You know, that very jovial music that you are listening to is from Joe Biden in Warsaw, Poland, one day after his surprise unannounced visit to visit Vladimir Zelensky in Kiev. Apparently, he was spirited away over an 11-hour train ride to get there on President's Day, no less. On President's Day, a federal holiday, the President of the United States was over there visiting one of the most corrupt countries in the world and, and a president in Vladimir Zelensky who... Is a controversial figure. I would say that he is more than a bit controversial. But the point is that Biden was over there on the one year anniversary of Russia's unjust invasion. And we should stipulate that, yes, it is an unjust invasion of Ukraine. And that is why we're talking about it on this show as well. There, we're going to unpack a lot that is going on in Ukraine and kind of look at this thing through a 30,000 foot altitude view as to what has happened there over the past year or so. But Let's listen to where things currently stand in Joe Biden's own words.
1: Thanks to bipartisan support in Congress, this week we're delivering billions in direct budgetary support, billions in direct budgetary support, which the government can put to use immediately and help provide for basic services of citizens.
0: How old is Joe Biden? I mean, he literally sounds like he can barely get these sentences out there. I mean, honestly, if you are the Democrats and you are not thinking of how you can possibly shove this guy aside for 2024, I I mean, I know their other options are terrible, but... My God, I, I mean, my God, he really just sounds terrible. And there is just no other way to say it there. But, you know, he's, he's saying there are things to bipartisan support in Congress. And, oh, by the way, that support is very bipartisan. And if anyone who watched the State of the Union address a few weeks ago, you saw that Mitch McConnell himself attended that State of the Union address wearing the Ukrainian flag tie, the blue and the yellow there. By the way, the optics... Of McConnell doing that and Biden going over to, to Ukraine, while, while former President Trump this past week visited the, uh, the town of East Palestine, Ohio, where this horrific train derailment went, really, you really kind of see, I, I think, a nice dichotomy there between an America first and an America last worldview. But the bipartisan support that Joe Biden is referencing there for quote, "basic services of citizens," well, do you know how much money Congress approved to Ukraine? In 2022? The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget has tallied it up. The answer is more than $113 billion of aid and military assistance that the U.S. taxpayer was on the hook for when it came to the Ukrainian government in the year 2022. That is just in the year 2022. We are already committing to more money. That was part of Biden's visit to Kiev was to pledge yet more money here. You know, at what point is is it enough? Really, at what point is it enough? And that's probably a good time to kind of step back and kind of review how this thing started and where we currently stand today. So a year ago... Russia invaded Ukraine, as everyone on the planet knows there. Now, we should stipulate that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was unjust. It was unjust. It was wrong. Putin was wrong to do that. Putin is ex-KGB. He idolizes the old Soviet Union. He idolizes kind of this, this greater Russia conception, where in his mind, a lot of these territories, Ukraine, Belarus... Georgia, you know, in in Putin's mind, he thinks of these of these territories as properly being part of Russia. So his, his his invasion was unjust, and I said as much at the time. But at the time, what I also said, and what I will reiterate to you now, Ukraine is not a NATO country. Ukraine is not a NATO country. You know, before the Maidan Revolution in Ukraine in 2014. The Ukrainian leadership actually was very much under Russia's broader sphere of influence, so to speak. It wasn't until after the 2014 Maidan revolution, which I have to say looks a lot like what some folks might call a color revolution. That's a term that gets thrown about often for 2014. It looks to me, and I think it looks to a lot of others, like a lot of kind of Western NGO types definitely had a, a, a hand in that revolution, trying to peel kind of Ukraine out of the Russian sphere of influence into the Western sphere of influence. And since then, the West has continually kind of dangled out there the possibility of Ukraine ultimately ascending to, to NATO and or the European Union, And I do not think that it is Putin apologia to just say that the reckless refusal of the West to take Ukraine's ascension to NATO or the EU off the table was definitely provocative. That is not Putin apologia. That is just realpolitik. That is just a realist approach to global affairs. Again, Putin's invasion was unjust, Period, full stop, end of story. But, but, there were definitely concrete steps the West could have and should have taken to preclude this thing. So after Putin went in there, you know, uh, th- this was late February of 2022, things started to look bad relatively quickly, and it was around this time that I and others were, were most supportive of the idea of aiding and possibly even arming Ukraine. I say possibly because you have to remember here that Russia has one of, if not the largest nuclear arsenal in the entire world, okay? Now, a lot of these weapons are dusty, they are from the Soviet era, but they're still nukes. So when I say maybe arming Ukraine, you have to remember the geopolitics of this, of being a proxy war against a nuclear-armed country that has a massive, massive nuclear arsenal. But back around that time, back last March into April, many of us were at least sympathetic to the idea of that, and probably, I think, most Americans on a bipartisan basis were supportive of aid, generally speaking, at least financial aid. Things started to change, from my perspective, around May of last year. Around May of last year, there was a certain point— where the Russians, uh, you know, the television shots of this were crazy. I have this image in my mind. I can remember it. The Russians surrounded Kiev with tanks. And for a while there, it actually looked like they might go in for the kill and try and topple Zelensky himself. Now, my stance on Zelensky is is complicated, I do not think that he is a pristine figure, to put it mildly. Ukraine is routinely ranked as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. But what I said at the beginning of the conflict, and I will continue today because, again, my position on this has not budged an inch, is that Zelensky remaining in power is preferable to him being toppled and Ukraine just becoming a Belarusian-style puppet state of Putin. Belarus under Lukashenko, their dictatorial oppressive leader is effectively just a total client state of Russia and Zelensky for all of his problems him being there is preferable to a to a Lukashenko style figure being in Kiev so again for those first couple months I was very sympathetic to financial aid I think most Americans were and then this again it built up to this horrible optic in May, where the Russians were outside Kiev, they surrounded the city, and it looks like that they were going to go in for the kill. And here's the key part. They ended up retreating. They ended up retreating. Now, I'm not saying that Kiev is any kind of paradise right now. I certainly would not want to go there for my honeymoon, for God's sake. But you have now seen any number of u.s or western leaders folks like lindsey graham i think mitch mcconnell if i'm not mistaken now joe biden himself go to kiev you know if kiev were really and truly under existential threat right now you wouldn't see that you wouldn't see that and yeah they played some air raid sirens when joe biden was there i i i I am skeptical enough of the propaganda from all sides that I genuinely worry whether these actually were legitimate air raid sirens or were playing for the benefit of fairly gullible Western media consumers. But, you know, if it's such a horrific, horrific war zone, then why are all these politicians going there? So let's take a quick commercial break. We will unpack that on the other side. Stay with us. Now, look, there have been any number of shocking, galling images that have come out of this conflict. There have been any number of reports of just horrific, horrific human tragedies, war crimes. I I, I am not doubting the authenticity of these images. And again, Vladimir Putin is a thug. He's a thug. Period. Full stop. End of story there. No doubt about that in my mind. But again, the vast majority of the fighting since Russia retreated, broadly speaking, from Kiev last May, has been relegated to the Donbass in eastern Ukraine and to a lesser extent, the Crimean Peninsula. Now, Crimea, I don't pretend to be an expert in Russian history, but it doesn't take an expert to look back on Russian history and you will see that For large swaths of the past millennium, Crimea has been a part of broader Russia. It was part of the Russian Empire and so forth there. Putin went into Crimea in 2014 during the Obama presidency. It's been de facto effectively controlled by Russia since then, at least most of Crimea has. When it comes to the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, which is the resource-rich region of Ukraine, so Burisma, the the energy company that Hunter Biden infamously quote-unquote consulted for for a gobsmacking and disgustingly high amount of money, Burisma is doing a lot in eastern Ukraine because that's where the natural resources is. Okay, here's the key thing to remember about when we talk about eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, these regions that are right along the Russia-Ukraine border. These are ethnically mixed enclaves. A lot of towns are going to be 50% ethnic Russian, 50% ethnic Ukrainian. Some towns will be more Russian. Some towns will be more Ukrainian. In fact, if you went ahead and you polled and, you know, polling in this part of the world, political polling, that is, genuine political polling, unbiased is virtually impossible to come by. But hypothetically speaking, if you were to actually poll the residents of a lot of these towns, these communities, these subregions, I think you would find a lot of differing opinions as to the flags that these folks living in that part of Ukraine would like to fly under. And here is the key point. Here is the key point that I have made time and time again, and we have to reiterate here on the one-year anniversary of this invasion, as Joe Biden and the Democrats and all sorts of kind of the uniparty foreign policy blobsters in the Republican Party as well are just clamoring in unison for as long as it takes. We're going to stand with you as long
1: as it takes. We are going to stick with Ukraine and all of the allies are going to stick with Ukraine. As long as it takes. And we will stay with you. We will stay with you for as long as it takes. You're already north of $15 billion in terms of those commitments. How far do you go? As long as it takes. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it
0: takes. You know, the very young and camera-friendly Prime Minister of Finland, when she was at the World Economic Forum recently... Said the same thing. I think the only message that we need to send that we will support Ukraine as long as needed. One year, two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years. We will support Ukraine as long as needed. Why are we doing this for as long as it takes? Why is the U.S. taxpayer indefinitely on the hook for a stalemate? In the Donbass region, a year after this conflict started, after the U.S. taxpayer again has already committed $113-plus billion of aid. Now, from Vladimir Zelensky's perspective, a lot of folks have said to me, Oh, Josh, like you're a nationalist. Don't you support Vladimir Zelensky's Ukrainian nationalism? Well, I would support Vladimir Zelensky's Ukrainian nationalism if I were a Ukrainian. If I were living in Ukraine and I were an ardent Ukrainian nationalist, Which, by the way, thank God I'm not. The Ukrainian history in World War II was disgusting. One of the worst Nazi atrocities happened in Ukraine at Babiar, mass shooting where 30,000-plus Jews were shot dead over the course of a couple days. The Ukrainians back then were woefully complicit in those atrocities, I might add. So thank God I'm not a Ukrainian nationalist. But if hypothetically I were, if I were a Ukrainian nationalist living in Ukraine— Yeah, I would probably support Vladimir Zelensky's position, which is that we are not giving up a square inch of territory. The Donbass, Crimea, any of these ethnically mixed towns, whatever. But I am not a Ukrainian nationalist. I am an American. And from the U.S. national interest perspective, it is ludicrous, ludicrous, to suggest that the U.S. taxpayer ought to indefinitely be on the hook when it comes to funding a conflict to ensure Ukraine does not lose a square inch of 50-50 mixed Russian-Ukrainian territory in the far eastern region of the country. It is ludicrous. And this is the key point... That the mainstream media time and time again just fails to make is that there is a pointed, notable difference between the United States' national interest in this conflict, or any conflict for the matter, but for, for on this conflict, versus the Ukrainian national interest. There is simply a difference. Now, one note of optimism is that I think the American people are slowly, despite the media's incessant effort to gaslight and say that, oh, if you question this as long as it takes rhetoric, if you question this $113 billion, the media has tried so hard to make it seem like it is just a pure, pristine dichotomy where you are either with us or you're with the terrorists. You know, it's kind of a throwback, actually, in that respect to kind of the Bush era Rhetoric on the war on terrorism, where he basically said that he said like you're either with us or we're the terrorists. It's this very kind of overly simplistic kind of dichotomous worldview where there is all out good on one hand, there is all out evil on the other hand. You know what I've referred to it in, in other contexts as kind of the World War II-ization of foreign policy, where every foreign conflict gets reduced to kind of this as long as it takes battle between truth, justice, and the American way and the absolute encapsulation epitome of evil, which obviously Nazi Germany was in World War II. But not every conflict is like that. Foreign policy and geopolitics are complicated. Very complicated stuff. And the American people, to their credit, are starting to sober up to this reality, despite the media's incessant attempts to kind of force them to accept this dichotomous framing. So... According to a recent Associated Press-NORC Center for Public Affairs Research study, apparently 48% of Americans currently favor sending military aid to Ukraine, which is pretty high, but it was 60% last May when the Russians largely retreated from Kiev. And a plurality of Americans actually now oppose direct financial aid. 38% oppose direct financial aid to the Ukrainian government. Only 37% are in favor. 23% take a neutral position on that question. So the American people, I think, are starting to sober up to this. They are starting to sober up to this. Because this thing is going to go on for a very long time. Vladimir Putin has a lot invested in this conflict. By all by all reports indicate that he has a lot monetarily invested in this conflict, let alone his his reputation. You know, if Russia were to quote-unquote lose however they define it i guess i guess a full retreat would be viewed as a loss you know who knows if putin would survive maybe someone in his in his inner circle would take him out you never know so he has a ton invested in this zelensky obviously has a ton invested in in this but vladimir zelensky's interest in this fight is to escalate it through the roof to get nato involved that is not a conspiracy. Vladimir Zelensky's direct interest in this battle is to drag NATO in, thus implicating the United States' Article V requirement to go to war. And the United States, by the way, has gotten awfully close to effectively doing that, where we've been sending over missile defense, we've been sending over all sorts of heavy equipment recently, just over the past few months, that equipment has dramatically escalated from the US, from Germany, from Poland. This thing is ugly. And this thing calls for prudent statesmanship, the likes of which we don't currently have. So let's talk about what that statesmanship is on the other side of another quick commercial break. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: Nuance in this conflict has been especially hard to come by because of just the utter, utter insistence Of this absolutist rhetoric, this framing of World War II-esque kind of all-out good versus all-out evil, and anyone who questions that framing, again, even questions the framing. I'm not talking here about like saying Putin was right because Putin was obviously wrong, and we will reiterate that right now. He was wrong. But if you question just the the mere framing of this conflict as World War II-esque all-out evil versus all-out good, then you get lambasted as some sort of Putin apologist. So nuance has been very hard to come by on this conflict. Unfortunately, though, nuance is what is called for right now. We need prudent statesmanship and actual nuance. So I think back to a tweet that was much criticized from Elon Musk, interestingly. Elon Musk had a very interesting tweet kind of proposing a path forward. This was... You know, this, this, this is four and a half, almost five months ago at this point. He tweeted this thing on October 3rd, 2022. He got totally dunked on, again, by all the people I was just criticizing for being a Putin apologist for this tweet. Here was Elon Musk's proposal on October 3rd of last year. He said, Ukraine, Russia, peace, and here's a four-step way to do it. First step, redo elections of annexed regions. These are the regions in the Donbass. So, redo elections of annexed regions under UN supervision. Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. Second part, Crimea formerly part of Russia as it has been since 1783 until Khrushchev's mistake. Third, water supply to Crimea assured for Ukraine remains neutral. I do not have an issue with. Virtually anything Elon Musk is saying here. Now, the one bone to pick would be UN supervision. I mean, the United Nations, is, as, as everyone knows, is, is not exactly the reputable organization that it likes to think of itself as. So maybe there's some sort of other supervision. I don't know exactly what that would be that we could actually redo elections because, again, as we just explained at great length here, a lot of these towns and regions are genuinely mixed. And in the parts of the Donbass that lean ethnically Russian, who knows? They probably see Putin as a savior-esque figure, some of them. That's not my stance, as I've said time and time again, but I think some. I, I bet some folks in these towns probably think that. So, redoing elections to try to carve out some sort of line, and crucially, that would entail Joe Biden and Western powers sobering up Zelensky to the possibility that, yes, yes, he actually might have to lose some, some territory, not a lot, Nothing that would threaten his regime, nothing that would topple Kiev, but to be open to the possibility, to be open to the possibility that the current lines drawn where they are in the dissolution of the Soviet Union between Russia and Ukraine are maybe not given from the tablets at Sinai, or maybe not God-given. Maybe they should be open to at least a little bit of flexibility. Second part of Elon Musk's tweet, Crimea, formerly part of Russia as it has been since 1783... Until Khrushchev's mistake, Elon Musk there is referencing Khrushchev during during the Cold War. So, like I said, over the past thousand years, Crimea has, for large swaths of the past millennium, been a part of Russia. And since Putin went in somewhat unchallenged in 2014, there it has been largely part of Russia. So I, I have no particular, uh, I have no I have no particular objection to this either. Uh, water supply to Crimea assured. That's a no-brainer. And the last part of Elon Musk's tweet is Ukraine remains neutral. This is probably the key part of all. What he is saying here is neutral between the Western sphere of influence and the Russian sphere of influence, or we might even call it the, the Sino-Russo sphere of influence, given the way that Xi Jinping is seemingly cozying up to Vladimir Putin. The talk out of Beijing is that China could really kind of recommit to funding Russia's war effort there. So what Elon Musk is talking about there is that assuring that Ukraine remains neutral, which in more explicit terms means taking NATO and European Union membership off the table. There is no reason whatsoever why Ukraine needs to be in NATO or the European Union. for that matter, there is really no reason why any of these far eastern countries that are far Eastern European countries that are not already a part of NATO should be added to it. So, you know, there was a debate in the U.S. Senate last fall, maybe around last August or so, last summer or fall, I can't quite remember, about whether Sweden and Finland, if I'm not mistaken, should be added to NATO. And I think Senator Josh Hawley was, of Missouri was the only senator to vote no. He wrote a piece explaining his no vote, I believe, for the National Interest Journal. Josh Hawley was absolutely correct to cast that no vote. NATO is an organization that existed to defeat the Soviet Union, which is an event, last time I checked my calendar, that happened 32 years ago. Why in the world are we continuing to expand it? Why in the world, as China rears its ugly head, is flying hypersonic missiles around the world in a a fraction of seconds, is threatening to invade Taiwan, has effectively already taken over Hong Kong well before the year 2047 formal turnover of that island? As China is doing all of this, why in the world would the United States, which is obviously the ultimate guarantor of the NATO alliance, why would we want to further expand our military footprint in Europe? You know, when Trump said the European countries need 2% of their GDP on defense, which, by the way, is what NATO calls for, he was totally right. The specific boundaries of Russia and Ukraine in this part is a fundamentally European question for which the Europeans should take primary ownership of it. So there is no reason whatsoever why NATO should be on the table or even should have been on the table in the first place when it comes to Ukraine. So from a U.S. perspective, what that means is that you have to sober up Zelensky to be willing to compromise. You have to put pressure on Putin to to do the same thing. I am not denying that. The reason that I'm focusing on Zelensky is because he has been fluffed up as like the greatest savior since Winston Churchill. So you have to adjust your view of Zelensky because, again, his interest is not ours. And if I were Joe Biden's secretary of state, if I were Anthony Blinken, I would be trying to get my boss to talk to Zelensky about getting to the negotiating table with Russia. Because the American people simply are not going to endure this interminable conflict against a nuclear-armed country. It's a proxy war that could get real hot real soon if we don't start to de-escalate things. There is no reason why the U.S. taxpayer needs to be on the perpetual, perpetual hook. Hundreds of billions of dollars, potentially. Already over a hundred, obviously. There's no reason why the U.S. taxpayer needs to be on the perpetual undying hook to decide the fate of ethnically mixed Russian-Ukrainian enclaves in eastern Ukraine. And I truly wish that Joe Biden had said as much when he was in Kiev on Monday. Obviously, he did not do so. The Republican Party in the U.S. House, Kevin McCarthy, if he were wise on this question, would start trying to push legislation to try to defund this war effort. Ultimately, Congress does have the power of the purse. That is how the Vietnam War, by the way, ended, is that Congress actually used its plenary power over the purse to fully defund that war effort. Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida, regardless of what you think of Matt Gates, he has a piece of legislation, actually, that he, that he introduced to do exactly that. I thought that piece of legislation was praiseworthy. And that is the kind of thinking that we need right now. Congress should be using its power of the purse to basically push Joe Biden to get Zelensky to the negotiating table and ultimately try to unwind this thing. So hopefully we get some good news out of Russia and Ukraine over the next few months. I can't say I'm particularly optimistic, but the game plan that I laid out there is what we all should be hoping for. So... For now, I hope you enjoyed this special Russia-Ukraine edition of The Josh Hammer Show. As a friendly reminder, you need to go ahead and subscribe to this show if you're not doing so on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, five-star review. Go ahead and actually leave us a review. That's how the algorithms work. We need to go ahead and do that. We've got lots of exciting stuff coming up there. But in order to do that, we need your support. So please go ahead and do that. And hope you enjoyed this episode. We will see you next time